0: Well, if you're new to New Hope, welcome. Glad that you're here. Last week, we started a short four-part series um, called How Great. And we did a little tour of the universe, looked at the Milky Way galaxy, and went out and looked at some stars and talked about God's work in our solar system because we wanted to explore how great is our God in order to understand how great the fall that took place. And it's very difficult to get our minds around what creation was like I tried this week to come up with some images that I thought would look like perfection, images that might represent um, what we would think of as paradise. I failed. I couldn't really find any because I know that as as beautiful as we think the Caribbean is or New Zealand or can I get a shout for Alaska, it's just no matter how great we think those places are, they fail in comparison to what God's original creation looked like and how perfect it was. So the best way we can kind of get our minds around this is to look at God's word and what he recorded in Genesis 2 before we look at Genesis 3. So if you have your Bibles this morning and you don't mind going to Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to be starting out just one chapter earlier in Genesis 2, and then we'll move forward into chapter 3, but you'll see it up on the screen as well. And also, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and I haven't said this in a while, but those Bibles that are in the pew racks in front of you are there for a gift for you if you don't own your own copy of God's Word. If you want a a free Bible, take one of those with you when you leave today. That's what they're there for, so that you'll have a copy of God's Word in your hand. So let's look, first of all, at Genesis 2.9, because this kind of gives us an image. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food... The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. So we got lush vegetation, beautiful greenery setting. We understand that. And what we're told next in verse 10 is that there's a gorgeous river that's just pouring through the garden, and it separates into four branches. This is what it looks like. It says in verse 10, Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. um, Have you ever seen bad gold? I personally never have. (laughs) I'm not sure what, I don't know how to read that. The land of that gold is good. Apparently there's good gold and bad gold, but then it says the Delium and the Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now today, we still have two of those rivers. The Euphrates and the Tigris still exist. So we understand that the Eden, the area of the land of Eden, is in Persia, what we know today as modern-day Iran, was in that realm originally before creation fell. Most um, um, individuals who study this passage along with ecology look at the, the account of these four rivers and believe that at the flood of Noah, when the earth collapsed up in itself when all the water came down and the fountains of the deep broke up, that these other two rivers that are referred to went subterranean, that they went under earth, and so they still exist today, but they're below ground. They can't be seen anymore, but we still see the Tigris and the Euphrates. And then we're told in this perfect creation that our God put in an underground sprinkling system. Look with me at verse 6. It says, a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So in absolute perfect creation, God's got this underground bubbler system. There's no rain. Apparently no rain had been seen on planet Earth until chapter 6 when Noah arrived. Noah's on the scene, and then we're told rain actually hit planet Earth. But here, it's an underground sprinkling system. So more magnificent than anything Hollywood could conceive, anything that I could possibly ever find online in the way of images, we have this perfect creation And then we're told there's also the absence of sin. So we're left completely alone with these events. As you read the account, it's different than the rest of the Bible. There's no commentary. We're just left to ponder what's unfolding here in front of us. So we've looked at the surroundings, we look at the environment. Now let's consider the individuals that were in that environment. Perfect health Adam and Eve. Freshly created from the hand of God, perfect mental capacity, perfect spiritual relationship. Think of the mental capacity of Adam. He's able to name every single animal that has ever walked the face of the earth. We're told in Genesis 2 that God brought before him all the creatures that he had made, and we're talking millions of animals. And Scripture says, whatever name Adam gave it, that was its name. Think of the scope of his vocabulary. So we're talking about perfect brain power, perfect spiritual relationship to God, perfect physical health, eyes, teeth, muscle structure, bone structure, nothing flawed. And so chapter 2 closes by saying this, the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed because there's no sin. So we've got this protected place of pristine beauty and it's completely untouched and it's the birthplace of marital intimacy and we're told this in Genesis 2, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So he created Adam outside and put him into the garden, the garden of Eden because Eden was a big land and garden in scripture means compound. God built this area that was a compound and put his people into it. So Adam and Eve are literally in paradise on earth. We don't know how much time elapsed from the sixth day of creation to the point when chapter three happens, but apparently it's before the birth of children. That's what we're going to enter into in Genesis chapter three now is this period of time in which a force to be reckoned with arrives on the scene. And this force appears in Genesis 3 and stays through the Bible all the way to Revelation chapter 20. And here's who he is. Verse number 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now your first reaction when you see that should be, Wait! Time out. How did he get there? How does this creature get into the garden, into this place of absolute perfection? Here's what we know theologically. Somewhere, somehow in time, in ages past, before the earth was created, God created an unknown number of perfect, sinless, unfallen spiritual beings known to us as angels. The word literally is messengers, messengers. And God tells us that in his word when he's having a conversation with Job. Job is kind of protesting about some things, and God challenges him. And he says this in Job 38, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In verse 7 he says, When all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. See, sons of God is a reference to angels in the Bible. So God's telling us that the angels existed before planet earth was created. And among them was one known as Lucifer. Lucifer is called the bright and morning star. As a matter of fact, his name in Hebrew is Halel. Lucifer literally means brightness or the bright one because he was so spectacular and beautiful. However, Lucifer rebelled against the rule of God. He has free will. Angels have free will. Otherwise, they'd be robots in their worship. But he had free will, just like all the other angels and he lifted himself up and elevated himself above God. We're told that in Isaiah fourteen twelve. But you said in your heart, speaking of Lucifer, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. Now his rebellion was uncovered because it's really hard to hide things from an omniscient God. And he knows everything. So Lucifer couldn't hide his rebellion. He just thought he could win. So that led to a cosmic battle. And we're giving some insight into this when the veil separating heaven and earth is lifted back just a little bit in Revelation 12. You can see this with me on the screen. It says, There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. Now, heaven is the last place you'd expect to find war. As a matter of fact, Jesus even talked about this because it was such a spectacular event. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, they've gone out, they've done what he told them to, they came back and visited with him and told him everything that had happened, and they begin to report to him what they experienced, and this is his response to them, Luke 10.18. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Meaning, I was there. You think throwing demons out is spectacular? It's great. You guys did a great job. You did what I told you to do. But I tell you, Lucifer has already been thrown from heaven. Satan has been thrown down. And do you notice something here very significant? Jesus doesn't use the name Lucifer. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. See, God changes your name to match your character. And so he's no longer the shining one. He's now the very adversary of God, and Jesus emphasized that. Why? Because he didn't want to be the servant of the Most High. He wanted to be the Most High, and so he elevated himself. So what you find right away is that sin is older than the Garden of Eden. Sin originated in the soul of Lucifer, and that's why Jesus called him the father of liars. Now, his rebellion was so successful and so powerful that one-third of God's holy angels went with him and fell with him. And they joined him in his rebellion. And the angels that followed him today, we call them demons. And they're functional in Satan's actions today. So demons are fallen angels. And we're told that some were so egregious in their behavior and their sin activity that God didn't even throw them to earth. He threw them directly into hell. Look with me on the screen. You see that in Second Peter 2. God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness. Now let me back up with you for just a minute to what Jesus said in Luke when he said, I was there when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. You have to stop and ask yourself, fell where? Where did he fall to? If he fell, he fell directly where? Well, when you open up your Bible to Genesis You open up your Bible to perfect creation, but you also open it up to the fact that rebellion has already occurred in the universe. Satan has already rebelled, and now he's moving in to target God's highest creation in the natural world, man. So that's why verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts because Satan arrives on the scene. Uh, You're Adam and Eve, you're in the garden, you say um, everything's perfect, the birds, the cattle, the creeping things, and when Scripture says the creeping things, it's talking about animals with short legs, those that are low to the earth, and the very tall creatures, the fish that are in the sea, and then we see this serpent show up. Now, modern art and, and artwork that's been done by the classical masters has captured Eve in the garden with this snake coiled up in a tree. Well, get that one out of your mind because that's not accurate, okay? It's a nakesh. The Hebrew word for for reptile here or serpent is N-A-C-H-A-S-H. And a nakesh is literally a a walking reptile. So what we see is something pre-fall, before the fall of man. And it's, it doesn't appear today on planet Earth in its original form as it did then, because this is something that doesn't look like what we have. Because later in chapter 3, you see God putting the curse on it, and that's when it goes to its belly. That's when it begins to eat the dust of the earth. But in this form, it's a nakesh. Well, what is a nakesh? In Hebrew, a nakesh represents something like a dinosaur or a dragon. So we see God using the word dragon all the way in the book of Revelation when he refers to Satan. And throughout the New Testament, he's called the dragon because he's the Nakesh. Now, whatever this creature is, is apparently incredibly intelligent, and Eve does not appear to be surprised whatsoever. As a matter of fact, she's not freaked out by this talking serpent. She engages in conversation with it. I assume that man must have been a real huge novelty to Satan because he's never seen anything like us. Prior to our creation, there's nothing like us. See, the angels, they saw lots of other eternal souls because they're eternal souls, but what's different about us is we procreate. Angels cannot procreate. So we must have been a huge novelty to Satan to see not only are we eternal souls, but with the breath of God in us, we also can produce other eternal souls. God gave us that privilege. Now, Jesus tells us the angels are neither given in marriage nor do they marry, so they're not united that way. So Satan approaches Eve, and he begins to speak through this animal, whatever this creature is, in perfect form, and with the wisdom of fallen angel, he presents this in verse 1. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, I ask questions of myself when I study the Bible. I assume that you do too. And here's a question I ask myself. Why did he go to Eve and not to Adam? Why does he make her the target? I'll tell you, my conclusion is that I believe he's usurping God's authority. And he's usurping God's order. So he makes Eve the target because he's making her the decision maker for the family. He's reversing what God had put in order and what God had put in place. So here's his approach. Get Eve to question God. Because if you question God, it leads to doubting God. And if you doubt God, it leads to distrusting God. And if you distrust God, it'll lead to disobeying God. And if he can get you to believe the character of God can't be trusted, then he's accomplished his goal. So here's my translation of this passage when I look at it. I believe... If we were put it in modern-day language, you'd hear it something like this. So, Eve, I guess God said you can't really have everything you want, huh? I guess he's holding back from you because you can't eat everything in the garden, right? And for the first time in human existence, spiritual warfare has been launched, And it's like a catapult, and it strikes a direct hit right on Eve because he's made the assumption that what God declares as truth is subject to arbitration. But God's truth is not subject to arbitration, but that's the way Satan sets it up. So he launches this attack by doing this. Eve, let's talk about how you feel. Let's talk about how you feel about what God told you you can do and can't do. And he smuggles it in by challenging the word of God. It begins with the idea that we have the right to minimize what God has said. God's word is not subject to human judgment. It stands forever. And the fact that Satan approaches her by saying it this way, has God said, should be the giveaway. Because I challenge you later today, go back to Genesis chapter two and start looking at verse four all the way through the entire book and what you'll see is the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, 10 times the Lord God because the Lord God establishes the emphasis on God's authority to rule and Satan hates the sovereignty of God. That's what got him kicked out of heaven in the first place. So he removes the Lord God and he just uses the word God, which is generic Elohim in the Hebrew language. He removes God's authority and that should tell you that Satan knows God's word. Better than you do. Better than I do. He's been around a long, long time. And so what he's done here is he's corrupted God's word and he reverses the positive and makes it a negative. Because in chapter 2, God said, you shall eat of every tree of the garden. But Satan says, you shall not eat from every tree of the garden. She's putting the negative emphasis. And in this way, what he's doing, he's focusing Eve's attention on the prohibition. Eve, isn't that a bit punitive? Is he denying you that? I mean, he's holding back from you. See, the fact that God gave them everything that they need, everything they need for their existence, is set aside completely as insignificant. He brings out what they don't have. That's what Satan wants you to do. Look at that one thing you don't have. He goes right to the one tree in your life that you really, really want. That tree right there, if you had that, your life would be so much better. But God's kept you from it. That's what you should have, that one thing that's holding you back. Let's look at her response, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Anybody here happen to notice what words she added on her own? Go ahead. Touch it, yeah. That's not in the original text. That's not what God said in chapter 2. He never said you don't touch it. He just said Stay away. It's not for your good, and from this moment on, he has her because Eve has just entered into a conversation she had no business engaging in in the first place. She's been made holy. She's been equipped with strength. This is a powerful woman, physically and spiritually and mentally, 100% of her brain capacity. She's not an unfallen creature at this point. She's unfallen. And even with perfect creation on her side and having walked with God in the garden, she's still susceptible to the attacks of Satan. This is the concept because I've encountered it myself. It doesn't really hurt just to kind of dip my toe in the water and explore this a little bit, does it? When I was first married, I had a conversation with a guy. I'm riding in my car, and actually, he was driving. And as we're going down the street, he sees these beautiful girls walking down the sidewalk. He puts down his window and starts yelling out to them and whistling. And I said, what are you doing? You're a married man. And he said, oh, come on, lighten up. And he begins to call the girls over to the car. And I said, I mean, seriously, what are you doing? You're flirting with women. You're a married man. Why are you doing this? He said, lighten up. I can walk through the forest without climbing the trees, right? Right? I said, where did that come from? Who told you that? You're you're dabbling in something you dare not dabble in. Would you say that if your wife was in the car? Well, no, of course not, but she's not in the car. Well, why would you do it if she's not in the car? I don't understand. Where are you going with this? See, I can explore this a little bit as the concept. I can dabble my toes in the water and not get stung. So Eve has a conversation she had no business having, She should have never engaged in that. And that's what all sin is. It's this lie that Satan says, there's pleasure out there. There's satisfaction. There is fulfillment. And God's just trying to restrict you. See, Eve knew God's commands. She understood his word. And Satan hears her response and he pounces And that's what opens her heart up to be able to have this conversation. He blatantly negates everything that God had given as a penalty. Look at his response. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He's calling God a liar. We'd say liar, Satan, because Jesus said you're the father of lies. And here's his lie. You can sin and get away with it. God said you will not die, or you will die. Satan says you will not die. He's calling God a liar. So here's his ultimate deception. There will not be any penalty for sin. That's really what it comes down to, and that's what he has deceived the world with around us. Go ahead. There's no penalty. There's no. Just God's standards don't apply. Back out of that one. That's not an issue for you. You don't have to worry about it. You surely will not die. That's the ultimate deception. Look at his next step, verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. Now that is a lucrative offer, isn't it? She's an unfallen creature. She's got everything except she's not God. Lucifer had everything except He's not God. So he's playing the same ploy on her that he himself went for. Now he says God knows good and evil. How does God know evil? How is that possible? God knows evil the way a physician knows cancer. A physician examines a patient and he knows and recognizes the signs of cancer from outside himself. God recognizes sin from outside himself even though he identifies it and knows what it is. Eve will know evil inside because this cancer called sin is about to rip her apart. She's the one that's going to have it contained within her. And Satan holds out this carrot saying, There's unlimited pleasure for you if you'll just do this one thing. You'll get divinity. So at this point, what you find is he's completed his work. He only has to make the offer and make it seem better than what God has offered and Eve's natural appetite kicks in. And I want you to notice, Satan did not place the fruit in her hand. He did not force it in her mouth. All he had to do was put the temptation out there and allow her to take it. You could have a better future if you would just do this. James 1 tells us that once lust is conceived in the mind, it brings forth sin. That's all it takes. Just for it to enter the mind, Responds in human actions because it moves to the emotions and then it's in her will, and her behavior is merely a response to what's in her mind. And the work of Satan, it's finished. Look what she did. Verse 6 When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Question When did the failure occur? Did it occur when she reached out and actually took the fruit? I believe as I look at this, the moment that she believed that she was restricted from something better than what God had for her, that's the moment that the failure occurred. Because according to Scripture, when lust is conceived in the mind, that's when sin is given life. You bring it into your mind, you desire it, and therefore you act on it. So the two work together. So when we do not completely and wholeheartedly trust that all of God's commandments are for our good, we fall into the exact same snare. Let me take you to a New Testament example of this. It comes from First John. First John 2, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So everything that's in the satanic system today is found in three things. Consistently, you find it all the way throughout time. Specifically, these three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three over and over and over again. And those three will always draw you right to the brink. And the only thing that restrains us, other than our relationship with God for believers, is that penalty quotia. The penalty that sets itself up to say, you will die if you do this. And once the barrier is removed, you will not die. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life kick in and they pull us right over the edge. Satan doesn't have a very big bag of tricks, but what he has, he uses very consistently. So look at this and how it fleshes out in her actions. It says that she saw the tree was good for food. What is that? The lust of the flesh. She saw it was a delight to the eyes. It's the lust of the eyes. She saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. What's that? It's the pride of life. There they are in the garden, the same three that John wrote about in the New Testament. Go with me to Jesus' temptation of Satan. Satan takes Jesus into the wilderness. He presents the temptation before him. What did he use? Command that these stones be made into bread because you're God. I mean, you could satisfy your need, right? What is that? The lust of the flesh. Takes Jesus and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you will just bow down to me, look at these kingdoms. Everything in the earth will belong to you. What is that? That's the lust of the eyes. Showed him everything that he didn't have. Then the third one, He takes him to the very top of the temple, the highest point in all of Israel, and says, throw your body off the temple, and before you hit the ground, God says that his angels will bear you up and pick you up on angels' wings. What is that? That's the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Satan constantly uses these over and over again. So what do we find here? We find Eve's response, because we know how Jesus responded do not tempt the Lord your God. And Satan took off. That was not her response. Her response, verse 6b, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. See, sin is never content to party alone. Sin can't party alone. I've got to get someone else in on this. Where's Adam? Well, he's apparently standing right next to her because we're told in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived Sorry to tell you guys, but there was no deception that took place on the part of Adam. He willingly ate the fruit. Eve did not have to talk him into it. He just reached out and took it. So there's no blame being shared around here. Adam freely took the fruit. That's why Scripture tells us, as in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15, and and Romans 5:12, through one man sin entered the world. Because he wasn't deceived, he just jumped in with both feet. So we got the same garden, same spouse, under the same sky, and suddenly, explosively, into what was once a pure world comes perversion and sinful evil thoughts, and it clings to them and it's dripping from them. And what do they need to do? Verse 7 The eyes then of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They felt it so strongly, so exposed, so shameful. They needed to hide themselves because they understood what they had just done, something they had never known before, so polluted, they even attempt to hide from God. And the response of Adam is the exact same response people all over the earth create When they live in sin, they don't want to come out into the light and be seen by God. You see Israel do it in the Old Testament. God shows up in the wilderness, calls upon them. What do they do? They run from him. They don't want to be in his presence. That's what Adam and Eve did. So look with me at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. John MacArthur was examining this passage, and here's a quote I wanted to share with you from his observation. He says, "A 180 degree reverse of their attitude toward God. They were so instantly corrupted by that one sin so as not only to feel the shame of that corruption, but to resist any fellowship with God. Sin will do that in your life every single time. It makes you want to resist the presence of God. When God says, confess your sins, we want to back away. Now we're told in verse 9, this was God's reaction to them. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Sorry, ladies, at this point, you get thrown under the bus, okay? Verse 12. The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. See, he immediately tries to shift responsibility. He's not going to take this upon himself. So he doesn't blame his wife, though. Who does he blame? He blames God. The woman you gave me. I didn't even know what a woman was. I was single. I went to sleep. I woke up married. How does this happen? You gave me this thing. It's not my fault. The woman's response, verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. All joking aside, this conversation is evasive. And it's deceptive. And it shifts the blame. And it tells us about the nature and the depravity of fallen man. When Derek was about four years old, He disappeared, and my wife learned that when Derek disappears, it's not a good thing. She went looking for him throughout the house and found him in her bathroom. He had discovered her red lipstick, and Derek apparently thought that he could do what mom did and put lipstick on his mouth, and um, even though he did get it on his mouth, he either missed or intentionally decided to paint the rest of his face. So there's red lipstick up the side of his cheek and up the side of his forehead, and it's over here. And then he decided to start coloring around the sink. So the countertop is all red, and then he went for the mirror and started writing on the mirror. And at that point, Lori walked into the room. Derek. The shock and the turn to see the authority figure in the room and the look on his eyes, and you know what's coming, don't you? Did you get into mom's lipstick? No. Okay, Now Adam's standing there with a loin covering over him, and he's trying to tell God, it's not my fault. That's who we are. We want to get out of the situation. We don't want to take the blame, so we start pointing fingers. And we're going to jump from verse 13 all the way down to verse 20 because this is where we're going to end this morning. It says this in verse 20, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, Because she was the mother of all the living, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So like Lucifer, Adam and Eve fell, and no longer was there anything holy in them. They're drenched in sin, and they fell so far, they are absolutely drenched with shame and guilt. And they fell so far, it started a chain reaction all over God's created order and all of the earth came right behind them and fell and we live in a fallen world. We're in the midst of it because this avalanche of sin, it was unleashed upon the world and it could not be held back. There was nothing they could do to stop it. It's like a rock slide. Once it starts, it's burying all humanity in this dirt. And that's why we live in a fallen world. They tried to cover their bodies And it didn't work. And then they tried to hide from God's presence. Do you ever try and hide from an omniscient God? You can't do it. Adam, where are you? Well, you can't play hide and seek with an omniscient God. He's gonna find you. You can, however, attempt to cover over your own sin and make it look as though you've got life together. You can attempt to sew your own fig leaves together and think you can fix the situation but you really need to be covered over by God through a sacrifice. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before when you look at this passage, but in order for God to make garments of skin for them, he had to do something very specific. He had to kill one of his created beings. See, a garment of skin, a piece of clothing. He made leather clothing for them. And in order to do that, something had to give its life to deal with the sin issue. He had to kill this animal. So for the very first time on planet Earth, blood is shed, the very first sacrifice, because of someone else's wrongdoing. And even though God dealt with covering them appropriately, they could no longer walk with God. God could no longer come to them in the garden in the coolness of the day. As a matter of fact, he had to throw them out of the garden and put angels at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to protect it so they would not come back in. You can read that later yourself, but God can't be in the presence of sin. Pure holiness and sin cannot occupy the same place. It's not possible. So to gain the privilege of being in the holy presence of God again, you have to have something shed its blood for you. You have to have the ultimate sacrifice because we can't get back there on our own. We want the restoration. We want to be with God. We want to be in heaven one day. We want to be where God dwells. But we can't be there without the sacrifice. And I believe we fail to understand the nature and character of the holiness of our God. And this is where the United States of America and every other planet on, every other nation on earth has it totally screwed up. They do not understand the holiness of our God. Or we wouldn't be a people who live in a sinful nation among other sinful nations on planet earth. Think about what we talked about last week when we started out with Isaiah in the throne room of God saying that he was caught up into heaven and he saw things that were astounding for him. And the first thing that he saw were seraphs flying above the throne of God And they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he talked about how the temple shook and the foundations rumbled in heaven when they said that, but he also said that they had six wings. With two they covered their eyes, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. Even the angels who are unfallen in the presence of God can't look upon him because he is holy, holy, holy. And sin can't be in his presence. And that's what people fail to understand. You can't be good enough to get into God's presence. It requires the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It requires the blood of the one that God sent to be the ultimate penalty for our sin. So just like he had to make a skin covering for Adam and Eve in the garden, he had to make the ultimate covering by removing the penalty of sin and giving us Jesus So from this moment in time on forward from Genesis 3, life on our planet is defined. So you come across individuals throughout the course of a week or a month who say, how could a good God do blank? How could a good God allow that child to die? How could a good God allow illness? How could a good God let a hurricane wipe out an entire city and a million people are still living without power? What kind of a God is that? They misunderstand The reason for all the defect and the death on planet Earth hinges on this moment. How great the fall. Because we live in a world full of sin and evil and darkness. And we're told that all of creation groans waiting for the return of the king to restore the order once again. So everything that is evil, everything that is wrong, that's immoral, all the anger, all the lies, all the deception tsunamis, earthquakes, everything is a result of the fact we live in a fallen world. So here's how this applies to yourself this week. When we do sin, and we do sin, we're none of us perfect. When we do sin, our God is the very first one to show up and through the power of his Holy Spirit say, what are you doing? He'll call us out. Because our God wouldn't be our God if he didn't bring conviction. What are you doing is quickly followed up by, look what I will do for you. Because our God promises that he has separated our sins as far as the east from the west if we will confess our sins to him. He says, if you will confess your sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know over the course of a weekend with hundreds of people that are here, I know among our crowd there's individuals who feel like I have sinned too much. You just, you have no idea. There's no way God is going to forgive me. I'm just doing the church thing to hope to feel better. I'm here to tell you God will forgive you your sins and wipe the slate clean if you will confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you take nothing else out with you this week, remember that. You can walk in victory. Because God sees you as holy, you just need to claim that sanctification process in your life. So I want to pray with you, and what I'm going to ask you to do is what I asked the 9 o'clock crowd to do, and I asked the Saturday night crowd to do. I'm going to ask you to pray for the people that were in the other services, because I asked them to pray for you, that God would take us collectively as a group, as a people, the body of new hope, and help us remember this truth as we go forward through this week. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand as a people who are redeemed through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and we stand in the confidence of this truth that you sent your son, your only son, because you loved this world so much you couldn't stand to see us perish, so you gave us a way out. Father, we declare how great you are. What we ask is that you would remind us as we go forward in this week that we would remember that we only need to confess our sins to you, and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We stand as a people who are victorious, and we forget that. So, Father, I ask that because of the victory that was accomplished on the cross, what you did for us, that you would remind us that we are holy in your eyes, a people who are redeemed for your own name. Send us out with that confidence, Father, And we praise you because you are great. It's in Jesus' name we claim this. Amen.